0: morning Bethel so our scripture reading for this morning is found um, in Psalm 62 so if you could turn in your Bibles to Psalm 62 Um, if you're using a pew Bible it's on page 621 or if you don't have a Bible there's one in the pew in front of you uh, those black books and you can find our text on page 621 Wait a second. (laughs) I just turned to Isaiah 62. Gail's got it right in the bulletin. So it's 479. Sorry about that. Yep. All right. If you wouldn't mind standing in honor of God's word and following along as I read. For God alone... Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances, they go up. They are together, lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God. And that to you, O oh Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. This is God's word. You may be seated. Okay, so have any of you, maybe this is just a few of you, but have you ever, any of you ever been disappointed um, or let down by a false promise? Anybody? Okay. The rest of you are lying or asleep. Um, all right. So sometimes that's because of the unfaithfulness, the deceptiveness of the promiser, okay? And and we, in good faith and for good reason maybe, um, put some trust in someone or something. But sometimes it's actually due to our own blindness. Why, Why do we get snookered sometimes where there's obviously a false promise out there, but we believe it and we put our hope in it? And so, of course, we're let down. Why do we do that? So think about one of those instances in your life. Does this fit the bill? Either you desired some gain, some satisfaction, some benefit, some pleasure, some something, and you thought that that person or thing could deliver it to you. Or maybe you feared some loss And you thought that that person or thing could deliver you from it, protect you from it. So either gain, you wanted to gain some gain, or you wanted to avoid some loss. So we are constantly looking to gain the gain and avoid the losses all around us. So we're constantly looking for what's going to deliver And I mean that in both senses. So if that's the case, if that's the way we're wired, what happens when that goes haywire? That orientation locks onto the wrong things. Well, John Calvin once famously said, our hearts are idle factories. Anybody resonate with that? (laughs) Um, So when we look to, we run to someone or something other than God, or the means that he gives in his place and time, when we run to other things that he hasn't authorized, that that are outside the bounds, when we run to those things to deliver us, we are bowing down to an idol. David Paulson helps us a little bit when he asks it this way, if we need help discerning our, our idols. Has something or someone besides Jesus the Christ taken title... To your heart's trust, preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear, or delight. Have you ever noticed at the end of the book of 1 John, um, Russell quoted from there, chapter 2 earlier, the last verse, it almost seems like this add-on. It's almost like, P.S., little children, keep yourselves from idols. Have you ever noticed that? Well, that could be like the heading over Isaiah 30. Little children, keep yourselves from idols, okay? So I think the reason I say what I say about how we're wired and how we look to things to deliver us, to give us the gain, to deliver those promises or to deliver us from loss, you need to see how pervasive that is. Otherwise, you're gonna think, oh yeah, the primitive idolatry, like we're too sophisticated for that, I, I don't do that kind of thing. Who would, who would bow down to a block of stone or a block of wood? Oh no, this is, there's nothing new under the sun. We do this all the time. What do you run to? So little children, and I'm not being patronizing there, I'm I'm included in this, (laughs) God speaking, keep yourselves from idols. That could be a heading over Isaiah 30. So let's dive in here and look first at verses 1 to 7. Ah, stubborn, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine. And who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Okay, so we're walking through the book of Isaiah, um, section by section here, and chapter 30 is our portion for this morning, and the situation is... That the people of Judah, the people of, of Israel, um, southern kingdom at that time, they're under the threat of Assyria, big superpower bully, and they're freaking out, how are we going to avoid them coming and conquering us, crushing us? Well, maybe if we made an alliance with Egypt, they're pretty strong, and maybe if we could, could buy their alliance, their allegiance, then we could be this combined force And we could be strong enough to protect ourselves from the threat that was Assyria. Okay? So, do you see the irony there of what's going on? They're setting out to go to Egypt to take refuge. You see it? So, they're returning to who is Egypt a little earlier in Old Testament history. Cruel slave master and they're running back there to find freedom and safety. That's pretty ironic. Even that word for alliance in verse 1 is the same word if you were here two weeks ago. In, in Actually, maybe it was three weeks ago. In chapter 28, it talks about how basically you've made your bed, you're going to have to sleep in it. The bed is too short to stretch yourself on, 28-20, and the covering too narrow to wrap yourself in. You're, you're trying to use... Egypt like a warm blanket for security and it's just too small of a blanket it's not going to cover you. It's the same word. Alliance or covering. That word is also used for an image or an idol later on in the same chapter. So the point is clear, they went to Egypt seeking shelter, seeking covering, protection. They thought Egypt could protect them from the coming storm of the Assyrians, but Egypt's no warm blanket. It was an idol. It was a substitute for God. So there's nothing new under the sun. We, We understand what that original context was so that we can say, how is that same dynamic sometimes at work in me today? What might this look like for us? Okay. What kind of unholy alliance might we make to save our skin? Does that sound a little more contemporary? Well, let's say you're in financial trouble. Threat. How do you respond to the threat? Well, you could scramble and some people play the lottery. You could gamble. You could cheat on your taxes. You could not pay taxes. You could try to manipulate or lie to someone of means so that they'll bail you out. Do you see how that would be just the same thing? Or how many times has it happened that a Christian really wants to be married and the loneliness is killing them and they meet someone who isn't a Christian and they're willing to marry someone who's not a Christian in order to find companionship? Willing to make an unholy alliance in order to find refuge and shelter. Or, notice the context again here. This isn't just a history lesson. Think about the fact that they were they're going back to Egypt, the very place where they were delivered from. So this back-to-Egypt irony can play in our idolatrous temptations. Listen to Ray Ortland. Um, this is really, really a, a helpful quote. There's something deep inside us that diminishes past facts and magnifies present uncertainties. Somehow, God's faithfulness in the past doesn't carry weight for long. And pretty soon, we start feeling as unloved and alone as ever. It's just the way we are. It's why we need constant renewal. There's always some plausible alternative to trusting in God, something to take our eyes off of God. So let's say, when you became a Christian, you used to be an alcoholic. I'm sorry, a workaholic. <laughs> we'll talk about alcoholic in a minute. Let's say you used to be a workaholic. You used to look to your job success to find your validation. And then you became a Christian and realized I'm freed from that slavery. Obviously, I'm going to work heartily, but I find my identity in Christ. And so if things go well at work, I don't hang my hat on that because ultimately my identity is in Christ. If things go poorly, then I'm, my life is not falling apart because I'm, my life is securely locked up in Christ, who God says I am. I'm his son. I'm his daughter. I know who I am. I can be secure. So you're freed from that slavery, and you find your identity in Christ. Well, remember that quote from (laughs) Mortland, diminishes past facts, even the facts of God's faithfulness and deliverance, magnifies present uncertainties, and time goes by, and you haven't Things haven't quite gone like you'd hoped in certain areas of your life. Maybe you're dissatisfied in other areas. Maybe you feel like a failure at home. And you just start burying yourself in work again. And you start to look once again to your work to find some personal validation. I'm somebody. I gotta gotta have something to hang on to. Failing everywhere else. At least in this area, I have some control. Except that it ends up controlling you. So we go back to Egypt to feel safe and secure when our identity and security is threatened. That's pretty contemporary. So, like, wait a minute. God delivered you from Egypt. Why would you run back to them for rescue and shelter and help? It's really easy to see, duh, when we see it in somebody else, but we oftentimes can be blinded to it in ourselves. The alcoholic or a drug addict who's redeemed from that slavery Then months or years go by and the heat gets turned up and they run back to the bottle or to to the drugs to get through. So they're running to it as a refuge, as a help. I mean, this is just pervasive. We're just wired this way. We just need to be able to see it. So how about a woman who's been codependent or has run to shopping like a savior and then she's freed, but then she experiences some threats and forgets the past and The present is so big and fear and anxiety rise and she runs to the store like a shelter or to men like a shelter. We can do this with body image and vanity. We can do this with porn, going back to Egypt. So what is this going back to Egypt? It's rebellion. Ah, stubborn, rebellious children. This isn't my plan for you. It's not where the Spirit leads. We just had that series on keeping in step with the Spirit. Well, here we go. Taking refuge in the protection of Pharaoh? Seeking shelter in the shadow of Egypt? It's going back to slavery. Well, obviously, that is like an ugly just slap in the face to God. So we need to see that for what it is. But also, God is so gracious. He tells us what else it is. It's not good for us. Look at verse 3. Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. For though his officials are at Zoan and his envoys reach Haines, that I know that's obscure. What does that mean? Well, those were two places you know, of Egypt they, they basically represent the united strength of Egypt. Oh, this strong help. And we sent this envoy down and we're going to get them on our sides and they're going to be... Um, you know fighting for us though that's the case everyone comes to shame through a people that cannot profit them that brings neither help nor profit but disgrace but shame and disgrace it's no good it's no help it's no gain it's no profit it's no help verse 6 an oracle on the beasts of the negev Which is, again, there's some sarcasm here, sad sarcasm. Judah Judah sent this official caravan down to Egypt to buy their help. And here's God's word to them. Through a land of trouble and anguish, from where come the lioness and the lion, the adder, the flying, fiery serpent? They carry their riches. Here's this envoy. In order to buy the help of Egypt, they carry their riches on the backs of donkeys, their treasures on the humps of camels, to a people that cannot profit them. Egypt's help is worthless and empty. Therefore I have called her Rahab who sits still. Rahab is a shorthand like referring to Egypt. Rahab the do-nothing. So here's, let's make it a little more contemporary here. If I say, hey, I've got this great investment deal for you. Ready? Everybody ready? It's a little stock tip like, you know, get on the edge of your seat. This is really good. This is going to be really good. Here here are the terms. High cost, no return. Anybody interested? We laugh. We should remember that laugh the next time we're tempted to idolatry. That's what it is. That's what God's trying to tell us. Isn't it kind of him to tell us this? We need to listen. Idolatry is like D-level junk bonds. It's like investing in a company already in default. Egypt is like gambling, except there's no chance of winning. (laughs) Like at least with the lottery, you have like a one in gazillion chance of winning. Not with Egypt, not with idolatry. So bottom shelf, like putting the cookies on the bottom shelf, idolatry is worthless. When we have another God before God, When even good things, not all idolatry is porn and drugs, sometimes it's good things that become God things, and and we just focus this inordinate attention and desire on them. So not only is that false God no help, but it brings nothing but shame and disgrace. And you know what? This is just the pattern all throughout the Bible, you're going to hear this. If, 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 you, if you hear me this morning, or maybe you've been reading the Bible and you go, you know what? Man, that's just over and over again. Listen to a few more places. There's nothing new under the sun. Jeremiah 2. In fact, turn there. I love this passage. If you know me at all, you know I love this passage. It's just so clear. Help us get it. Jeremiah 2, 11 to 13. You can find it on page... Uh, 628, the Pew Bible, if you're using that. So Jeremiah also had a tough crowd to preach to, and I'm not comparing you guys to them. I'm saying Isaiah had a tough crowd. (laughs) Um, and uh, Okay. Um, So has a nation changed its gods even though there are no gods? Like, who's ever heard of that in other, other pagan nations? But my people... The Lord speaking, my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. doesn't benefit them at all. So he calls heaven and earth in, like it's like a court case. Like, look at this. Look at the evidence. This is crazy. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. You know, we don't drink out of cisterns, but then they dug out holes and they collected water. And if you get a crack in the base of that thing, you're sunk. Like, it's just not going to work. It's worthless. And that's what all idolatry is. It's worthless. We, when, when, whenever we give way to idolatry, little children, keep yourself from idols, we're basically looking this cold, clean, clear, crisp, Overflowing fountain of living waters in the face and going, I'm thirsty, but you're just not gonna do it. And you lick the rust off the bottom of a dirty, broken cistern. That's how insane idolatry is, and we all give way to it. That's what false gods are like. See another example, this same an echo of the same idea, Philippians three. Philippians 3.17. Paul writes, Brothers, join in imitating me as he finds all of his gain in Christ. We'll come back to that. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of christ their end is destruction their god is their belly their appetites rule them god doesn't rule them and what ends up happening their glory what they glory in what they center their lives on it's shameful and it leads to their shame their minds are set on earthly things do you hear the echoes with isaiah 30 so so what is it for you What are your idols? What are you tempted to bow down to? It can be comfort. It's a good thing, isn't it? But when we make it a God thing, we make it a demand. We have to have it power, prestige, control. We can make a God out of control. And whatever will bring us that control is our Savior. Security, pleasure, even love. Again, it's a good thing, but it can turn into a God thing and we, we smother or we cling to people because God is not our refuge. When a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, something you must have that you can't let go of, then we know it's become an idol. And God doesn't want us to live our lives on such shaky, sinking sand. He wants us to live on the rock. He knows. He is that rock. He's the refuge. And he knows what's good for us. I, this verse is in Isaiah, and it just is amazing to me. I, I love this verse. Flip to Isaiah forty-eight seventeen. It's right in line with what's going on in, in Isaiah 30. Isaiah 48, 17. So rather than the broken cisterns that hold no water... Changing God, our glory, exchanging him for that which does not profit. Here's what God is saying to each of us this morning. 48.17, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit. Who leads you in the way you should go. (laughs) This isn't some crazy health wealth thing, but what it Is God made us, He knows what's best for us. If we reject Him and go for the broken cistern, we are trading down. We need to hear that because so oftentimes it it seems like if we follow God, it's gonna be loss. If we follow God, it's gonna be a bummer. I'm gonna lose my fun. No, that's a lie from the pit of hell. I'm the one who teaches you to profit. I'm going to keep you away from the stuff that is worthless, that cannot profit you, cannot help you, benefit you at all, ultimately. It's just simply the way the world's set up. If you trust in other gods, it's loss, it's empty, and it will lead to your shame. Trust in God through Christ, it's gain, true gain, lasting gain, and it will be to your glory. (laughs) But we often don't want to hear it. We... Push back against reality, and we want to hear something else. Tell me what I want to hear. Look at verses 8 to 17. And now go, write it before, before them on a tablet, and inscribe it in a book that, they may, that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. For they are rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see. And to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things prophesy illusions, leave the way, turn aside from the path, let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Now, did they actually say it that way? No. But in effect, that's what they were saying. They were sticking their fingers in their ears to what God had to say. They didn't believe him. It was a total no-confidence vote. They'd rather go to Egypt, and there's nothing new under the sun. You and I, we can try to, to smooth off the roughness of a call to repentance we don't like repentance. That means there's something wrong with me. We can push back against the se- sexual ethics of the Bible or the exclusivity of Christ. he's only one way. Or the doctrine of hell or whatever else is politically incorrect or culturally rejected. You know, certainly there are people who preach a Jesus who doesn't demand anything. And you won't offend anyone. But you're not going to save anyone with that wax-nosed Jesus that just gets shaped by what is popular in our culture at the time. So we don't get to define reality. We don't get to pick and choose what we like. God is God and we are not. Paul even warns us. He says, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but will have itching ears. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for the, themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Okay, so the Word of God, it confronts us oftentimes. Preach the Word. What did he say to Timothy? Be ready in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, correct. Train in righteousness. Okay, so if, if we get around the Word, that's what's going to happen. We're going to get reproved, rebuke, but it's loving because God wants to shape us and mold us and keep us on his path because he knows what's best for us. So the Word of God confronts us. It tells us and shows us who we really are and what we really need. And yes, we push back, but when we do, there's consequences. We need to know it. Look at verse 12. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word, that's what they were doing. And so this is, ought to be a warning to us not to push back. Because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perverseness and rely on them, therefore this iniquity, the sin of despising the word of God, pushing back on it, shall be to you like a breach in a high wall, bulging out and about to collapse. See that word picture? You think it's this high wall of protection. Actually, it's about ready to give way, like the breaking of a a dam, whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant, and its breaking is like that of a potter's vessel that's smashed so ruthlessly that among among, among its fragments not a shard is found with which to take fire from the hearth or to dip up water out of the cistern. In other words, it's worthless, no help. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. Trust me, don't run to Egypt. (laughs) So isn't it crazy? How do we hear that and reject that? (laughs) Isn't that good news? In returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and trust shall be your strength. I noticed something this morning. Look at verses 9 to 11 again. Here's this rebellious people, and they say to the prophets, God's spokesman... You know, tell us what we want to hear. Why would we want the prophet to speak smooth things and prophesy illusions? It's because we think that God's message is too harsh. We don't like stuff that cuts against the grain of our souls. But what's the message? In returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust you shall be your strength. Like, why would we push off that good message? So their response to that good word, that good news, you were unwilling. You said, no, we will flee upon horses. We need to be practical here. We need some military strategy. Therefore, you shall flee away, and we will ride upon swift steeds. Therefore, your pursuers shall be swift. You see the consequences? A thousand shall flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five, you shall flee till you are left like a flagstaff on the top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. Serious consequences for ignoring God's word. So do you see it? Do you see it? Like how often, and I'm an idiot like this too, how often we trade the green pastures and quiet waters for the desert of our own devices? We turn away from come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, in order to run incessantly on the hamster wheel of our own efforts and anxieties and fears. It just seems so much more responsible to fret so much more realistic. Where are we running? Who are we hoping and trusting in? Where's our refuge? So how would you expect, like if that's the scenario, at least back then, maybe this isn't true for all of us, although it is true at times for all of us, I think, how would you expect God to treat people that blatantly reject his help like this? It's a pretty ugly picture, isn't it? That slap him in the face and run to pathetically poor substitute saviors. How would you expect him to respond? What's your view of God? How many people outside the church, how often do you hear this in the news or just kind of in pop culture, the God of the Old Testament is angry and vindictive? And how many Christians in the church fight similar feelings? Well, sure, God gets angry. He's also angry in the New Testament at times, okay? So it's the same God. But here, make sure that you see what this passage says about the character of God. This is huge. Look at how he responds, verses 18 to 21, therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. (laughs) Like he could just, fine, I'm just gonna smoke him. The Lord waits to be gracious to you and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. For a people shall dwell in Zion In Jerusalem, you shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. What a God who loves to show mercy and grace. He's eager to show mercy and grace. Is that your conception of God? If it's not, you need to let the Bible shape your conception of God. And then look at verse 20 and 21 and though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore but your eyes shall see your teacher notice the capital T and your ears shall hear a word behind you saying this is the way walk in it when you turn to the right or when you turn to the left so here's here's God's modus operandi how he works he loves to get our attention And he will do it with the bread of adversity and the water of affliction at times. And he doesn't do that getting our attention with suffering or threats or whatever. He doesn't do it because he gets some sick pleasure out of watching us squirm. He does it because we're such stubborn children, and sometimes he has to shout to get our attention. And all of that because he wants to be gracious to us. He exalts himself in order to have mercy on us. So where is this passage pointing if the Bible is one story? It is pointing so clearly to the Lord Jesus. I should point like this. Okay, There's the beginning. There's later on. I mean, talk about exalting himself for the sake of mercy in his Son. All for the sake of mercy. The Lord is a God of justice, just like this passage says. He can't sweep our idolatry under the rug. And man, our hearts are full of it. Our lives are full of it. It has to be dealt with. It has to be punished. But the Lord is merciful. He desires to be gracious. So he exalted, he lifted up his son on a cross so that he could deal with all of our messy, nasty, slap in the face, no confidence boat idolatry. Broken cisterns for cold fountain. He, he did it so he could be merciful and gracious with us. He didn't hide himself. He revealed himself. Jesus took on flesh and lived and died in order to say and to show this is the way. Walk in it. You see that in verse 21? I am the way. Follow me. Trust me. Let me show you the emptiness of idolatry. Let me show you the substance of my glory. It's why Jesus said, if anyone wants to come after me, deny yourself. Put all that silly idolatry to death. Leave it behind. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Because you know why? Anyone who wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will find it. Gain It's life. you're after gain, you're wanting to avoid loss, right? So follow me, because I'm the Lord that teaches you to profit. Do you see it? It's good news. The call to come and die and follow Jesus is good news, because he wants you to really live. It's why Paul, when he saw it, when he had his eyes open on the Damascus Road, he talked like this earlier in Philippians. Remember we read 3.17? In 3.7 it says, whatever gain I had... I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For, for, the, for his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. So he was blind in his idolatry before. He was really had a really impressive resume. He was really zealous. He thought Jesus was an imposter and all loss. And gain was to persecute those Christians. And Jesus invaded his life on that Damascus road and opened his eyes to reality, and all of a sudden Jesus was gained and everything else was loss. So you and me, as we hear God's word to us this morning, what are we waiting for? (laughs) Look at verse 18. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. That's his character. Therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. Hopefully, you see him exalted even this morning, in this passage, his character. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those, all those who wait for him, rather than running to other substitute gods and saviors. Now look at verse 15. For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning repentance and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. How does the Lord feel toward rebellious, stubborn children? He longs to be gracious. So he says, return to me. Repent and find rest. So what do we need to do? We need to call our idolatry what it is. We can't lie to ourselves and shift the blame. See, if when the Bible tells us who we really are, it 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 kind of offends us sometimes. It steps on the toes of our soul. Ooh, I'm not as good as I thought I was. And so we can just go keep living a lie and say, "I'm not that bad. I'm not that bad. I'm, I'm a lot better than this person. I'm a lot Or we can say, "You're right. That's right. But you are so merciful and gracious." And so you return and you find rest because you've been honest. You've been been connected with reality, God's glory, and our sinfulness and idolatry, and Jesus' wonderful, merciful grace. So if you're unwilling to call idolatry what it is, then you'll never repent and you won't return and find rest. And quietness and trust shall be your strength. So if we know the worthlessness of idolatry and if we see that God alone is worthy of our trust, then we're going to return to him over and over and over again. and, and Because he's the only refuge for our souls. He's the only one that can save. And what ends up happening is we lose our nothings. Remember Rahab, the do-nothing? <laughs> so idols are nothing. They can't help you. They can't profit you. We hold on to them so tightly, and they don't do anything ultimately for us. So when we get this, when we return, we open up our hands, drop the nothing that we're clinging to so tightly, and we run and we cling to our refuge. So we lose nothing because all we lose is the nothing. All we lose is the idolatry, the the idols that are really nothing in the first place. You get that? And we gain everything because what do we latch on to? Our true refuge in God. So losing nothing, gaining everything. Look at verse 22. Here's what happens. And, And this is how someone's converted. This is how someone goes from being not a Christian to becoming a Christian. For the first time, their eyes open and they go, oh. God's really big and great and holy and I'm really a sinner and I have just been telling him to shove off all my life and I'm in trouble unless he has mercy on me and oh my goodness, he is merciful and gracious and he sent his son to give me mercy and grace and you drop everything and you run and you cling to Jesus. But every time we wander, every time we're Drifting and we bow down to other gods, this is the same path. Returning and finding rest in him. Here's what happens when we get that. Verse 22, then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and your gold-plated metal images. You will scatter them as unclean things. You will say to me, be gone. (laughs) Or you will say to them, be gone. If you say me, be gone, maybe you're getting tired or something. Um, Okay, so has this ever happened to you? Have you ever just woken up to what what you were blinded to? You realize, oh, my goodness, I am bowing down to these cut-rate, cheap, substitute gods. We're this one. And God just opens your eyes, and you you return, repentance. You're so glad that God is so gracious. You celebrate the gospel, and you just tell those idols to get lost. Maybe that's what you need to do this morning. Maybe God's exposed what those idols are. Maybe it's one thing. It's probably the thing that's come to mind. It's the thing that's made you kind of like, you know, anxious over this past week. You know, you feel guilty and you don't want to give it up and maybe it's been a repeated thing. What idols do you need to tell off this morning? Stuff you need to maybe literally throw away or destroy or delete or come clean on. could be costly it seems and we would want to shrink back but no no make sure you get the cost benefit that's all through this passage (laughs) this is the Lord who teaches you to profit and you know what happens when we return to him we run to him as our refuge we find soul prosperity because the real God can give real help Remember Isaiah 48, 17? Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord, your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. Look at verse 23. Here's what happens. So they lived, obviously, in agrarian society. Land was everything. Maybe we could describe this differently. But look at the benefit, the prosperity that comes from trusting in God as your God and not running off and taking matters into your own hands and finding substitute gods. And he will give rain for the seed with which you sow the ground and bread the produce of the ground which will be rich and plenteous. In that day your livestock will graze in large pastures and the oxen and the donkeys that work the ground will eat season fodder which has been winnowed with shovel and fork. And on every lofty mountain and every high hill there will be brooks running with water in the day of the great slaughter when the towers fall. All the threats taken out of the way, which this vision starts to push toward the ultimate deliverance and the ultimate everything made new. Look at verse 26. Moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be sevenfold as the light of seven days in the day when the Lord binds up the brokenness of his people and heals the wounds inflicted by his blow. So all those threats that seemed to loom so large that tempted us to want to run to false hopes And false shelters, look at how strong God is to bless us in the way that we long to be blessed, to find gain that we so desire, to avoid the threats that we so desire to avoid. Look at this blessing. And look at how strong he is to deal with our threats. Look at verse 27, behold, the name of the Lord comes from far burning with his anger in thick rising smoke. His lips are full of fury and his tongue is like a devouring fire. His breath is like an overflowing stream that reaches up to the neck to sift the nations with a sieve of destruction to place on the jaws of the peoples a bridle that leads astray. So Judah needed to see that that's how strong God could be against their threats, the Assyrians. And the point for us is, if God is for us, who can be against us? What threat can ultimately be against us? Even death Oh, they can kill the body, but after that, they have nothing more that they can do. No threat is ultimately a threat. If God is for you, who can be against you? And then we have verse 29. You shall have a song as in the night when a holy feast is kept. That's a reference to Passover. This is a second deliverance from Egypt. Isn't that sweet? You see how that runs the whole way through? <laughs> You're running back to Egypt. I'm going to redeem you from Egypt again. Second Exodus, which obviously Jesus did at the cross. And after the Exodus, what did they do? They sang. When God wiped out the Egyptian soldiers as they were coming at the Red Sea, they sung a song of deliverance You will have a song as in the night when a holy feast is kept and gladness of heart as when one sets out to the sound of the flute to go to the mountain of the Lord, to the rock of Israel. So just like Exodus 15 after the Exodus deliverance. So again, just big picture here as we we close. We can so easily return to Egypt, but the Lord, what's he like? He longs to be gracious, to redeem us again, to keep rescuing us so that we can find rest For our souls, so that we will sing songs of deliverance, (laughs) because He's a real God. He's a real Savior and He brings real deliverance. So let's just tell off the idols this morning and run to the Lord who is our refuge. Jesus is a better Savior than we are sinners. Is that clear from this passage? (laughs) So the call this morning is: come ye sinners. Return to Jesus and find rest for your souls. We're going to sing that together after we pray. Oh God, by your spirit, would you please shine the spotlight in each heart and show them, show each of us, show me, where I am, where we are bowing down to other gods. We have other gods besides you. Please convict us by your spirit. Please expose that. Just deal with our blind spots and our blindness and help us to see that this is a loving, good thing that you would convict us. Help us to trust you to to deal with what you show us and not cringe and retreat back into the darkness. I pray that we would walk in the light with you, that we would come to Jesus this morning, all who labor and are heavy laden, so that he will give us real rest. Pray that we would take his yoke on us and learn from him because he's gentle and lowly in heart and we will find rest for our souls because his yoke is easy and his burden is light please do that work draw us back to you as our refuge and i pray that psalm 62 would be the song in our hearts for god alone my soul waits From him alone comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. In Jesus' name.